Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Down. I will tell you about our returning guest, Sarah Heppola, momentarily. This is an extra special, kind of extra long episode for reasons I'll explain. But first, a couple of announcements. They have to do with the unspeakeasy, mostly anyway. So I should tell you that the retreat in Austin, Texas will be our next retreat. It's June 24th and 25th. It's over the weekend. This is a daytime only weekend retreat. So as you may know, many of the retreats are like three nights overnight and we go someplace sort of remote. This one is right in Austin near downtown, very conveniently located. And it will be during the day, probably like I don't know, 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. It includes a barbecue cocktail reception on Saturday evening. That's all included. So you're going to get lunch both of those days plus the party on Saturday evening. As always, space is limited and it is filling up. But if you are, you know, a gal and you want to uh, come to an Unspeakeasy retreat, go to theunspeakeasy.com and check out the Austin retreat. The one that we had in Minneapolis a few weeks ago was fantastic. That one was a little bit different. It was a hybrid overnight and daytime retreat, and that worked out really well. We had incredible guest speakers, incredible participants. It was intense. Minneapolis is a very interesting city when it comes to a lot of the issues we talk about around here. So, you know, get in on this if you're not already. It's pretty spectacular. And the online community is thriving. That is um, available for uh, membership at $150 a year. That's really affordable. Just think what that breaks down to every month. I think it's like $1,250. It's great. So if doing a retreat is not in the cards for you right now, the online community is amazing. Everything is off the record. It's a private community. We kind of do a screening process for everybody who enters. So it's a very secure space. Everybody is super interesting and also very respectful of everybody's privacy. And um, it's amazing. Like I said before, I we kind of built this thing thinking that I wouldn't have to deal with it that much. <laughs> and I'm actually in there all the time. Like the main social media that I'm using right now. Again, theunspeakeasy.com. And also, in case anybody is confused, the unspeakeasy, the free thinking, women's intellectual space, private community is not specifically related to the Unspeakable podcast, what you're listening to right now. The substack for this podcast is a separate entity from the Unspeakeasy. I know there's a lot of stuff to subscribe to, and you know we're always trying to think of ways to bundle things, but right now they are totally separate entities, so in case there's any confusion. Okay, what else do I have to tell you? Oh, by the way, there's a meeting for founding members. This does relate to this podcast. The Substack. If you are a founding member of the Substack for this podcast, The Unspeakable, we're going to have a founding members Zoom hangout this coming Sunday, May 28th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. We usually hang out for about an hour and a half or so. I know it's Memorial Day weekend, but I was told that, that that's fine. Nobody has any plans anyway. So if you're a founding member... Come on over for that. I'll send out a post for you guys on Substack to remind you. Okay, so Sarah Heppola is the returning guest. This 
episode is getting out a little bit late. For the first time ever, I got delayed on the podcast. I got so sick that I actually had to reschedule a bunch of interviews and I fell behind. It's never happened before. Even when I had COVID, I managed to do an interview and get the episode out. But somehow when I got back from Minneapolis, I was so sick with just a what I guess was just a cold, but it was more debilitating than even when I had COVID. So they really got behind on things. So what I decided to do was to bring you this entire interview with Sarah Hapala. It includes the bonus portion as well as the main interview. So even if you are not a paying subscriber, you're going to be able to hear the whole thing. So this interview is divided basically into two parts. Sarah, who, as you may know, is a journalist, an essayist. She is the co-host with Nancy Rommelman of the podcast Smoke Em If You Got Em. She's been on twice before to talk about her writings and her thoughts about various culture war issues. She published a piece. Uh, it wasn't a piece, actually. It was a uh, it was a solo podcast episode of Smoke Em If You Got Em about her recent experience teaching on the college level. She taught writing, uh, creative writing, for the first time ever, and she did a very poignant solo cast about what that was like and her expectations of the students and the whole thing uh, versus what actually happened, what they were reading, how they reacted to reading assignments. It was really lovely. And so I brought her on to talk about that. We talk about what was on her syllabus, authors like Maya Angelou, David Foster Wallace, James Baldwin. We talk about her students' willingness to separate the artist from the art. And then uh, in the second part, we're going to talk about an essay that Sarah originally published a year ago on Mother's Day that she re-upped for this Mother's Day. And that is about the fact that she's not a mother and that she had always wanted to be and what it's like to live in that space of taking a path that she hadn't anticipated taking. We talk about the nature of regret, the courage it takes to admit having regret. And it's a really great conversation that goes lots of different ways. So I encourage you to listen to the whole thing. This is a long episode, but we are coming in a few days late here, and I'm actually going to leave this up through next week. We'll take a little Memorial Day break, so you'll have uh, more than a week to to get caught up on everything, and then I'll get back on schedule unless I get terribly sick again. Okay, I'll stop talking now. This is my conversation with Sarah Heppola. Sarah Heppola, welcome back to The Unspeakable. Megan, I'm back. So happy to be here. You're someone who's always on my speed dial when it comes to guests, among other things. Oh, lucky um, me. <laughs> your, your interviews are always popular and listeners are always requesting you. Uh, but I called you this week because of an especially compelling solo cast you recorded for your podcast, Smoke Em If You Got Em. It was about the experience of teaching college students mm -hmm. today. Yeah. And I refer to that subject a lot kind of in passing around right. here, um, but I don't think I've devoted an entire episode to it. So tell us why you devoted an entire episode to that subject. Well, it was my first semester teaching in um, a real live American university. And I had been 
dabbling with the idea of of teaching at colleges for a while. I mean, look, I'm a writer and a journalist by trade, like, you know, the overlapping Venn diagram that, you know, that goes along with like writing books and teaching classes in in colleges is what, 45%, 60%? I don't know. I want to hear like what your expectations were. What what were your fears? Because you went in and you were going to teach creative writing and we should say these are undergraduates. Yeah, it was it was going to be what we call like creative nonfiction, but okay. like but like with a memoir. Bent. Okay, memoir and, this is the, and personal essay. I've writing. taught this kind of class. Yeah, man, many times. Yeah. And I have not taught at an actual institution for for several years. And I have my theories as to why that may be. And those theories may be valid or not. But do you there you are. Were you kind of like loaded for bear kind of thing? Were you like ready to get resistance? How did you plan your syllabus? What was your approach? So my leading in the months leading into starting this class, um, which was going to be a workshop, right? This is and it was going to be I got to create it, which was the cool part, but also the challenging part. But it was going I had sort of two pronged fantasies. And what I mean by that is there was this one side that was like, it's going to be like the Dead Poets Society, like they're going to be standing on their table, like desks, and they're going to be like, I'm going to, you know, change their world. And then the other side was like, I'm going to get canceled on the first day. And I have to say, the other thing is like, I have not lived my life and especially curated my creative output, professional output, with the idea that 19 year olds would be looking at it. By which I mean, there is so much what you might call inappropriate content in my Google searches. I mean, it's just I've been cussing from the beginning. It's been about sex. It's been been about too much drinking. You know, the thing I mean, I, I don't even but like I have written a lot in the years leading up to this decision. I wrote a lot about and talked a lot on my own pod about dating younger men. And I was like, oh, take it back, take it back, take it back. <laughs> Like, like, I'm very professional, very professional. There's a picture, like, like, Ma, I do a podcast with Nancy Rommelman called Smoke Em If You Got Em. You've been on it. It was one of our most popular episodes. And the main picture is me smoking because I, like a dirt bag, picked up smoking during the pandemic. Yeah, but that's into old school intellectual. All my professors smoked. Yeah, well, I know. Well, that was back Not in the all, 80s many. and 90s. I mean, yes. now it feels like... <laughs> you know, walking around with mind comp like or something like that. Like it's just like yeah. it's, right. and, you know, yes, it has this this sort of retro sizzle, and and you know, and and I've heard that young people are kind of picking it up again and what? Yeah, totally. I I yeah. see young people smoking all the time. Yeah, actually, yeah, but it didn't feel professorial. It didn't feel like, especially because I was just starting. You know, so it's just like. I don't know what this is going to be like. And so, you know, I kind of went in worried that they like what they were going to have found on Google. And I walked into the room and realized like, oh, none of them has any idea who I am. Great. Wonderful. Like, yeah, they're not going to bother. <laughs> but they, don't, they don't care. They yeah. don't care. Why would they care? <laughs> I didn't <laughs> care about like the idea that I cared about the personal life of my professor at the age of 19. Like I just didn't even have the bandwidth. Right. I know. You know, know, like when amazing. you get to MFAs, then that's that's yes. when people are like, oh, so and so and their interesting history. And, and this is their canon of work. But like at the age of 19, you signed up for a nonfiction class because you needed three credits. It's like, <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't bother. Right. So it took them a while to figure out, oh, oh, OK, I think, you know, people and like like one day one of the kids 
I was like, you're on Instagram? And I was like, Ugh, yes. And they pulled up Instagram in the class and they were like, you have a lot of followers. And I was like, I'm <laughs> a big deal. I'm like, a, I'm, in there I'm like, a, I'm a really big deal. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> so these are the and so what kind of students are they? Are they yeah. sort of first generation college students? Were, were they English majors? Were they like traditional undergraduate age? What was their sort of demographic? Yeah, it was a total mix. It's really hard. I mean, you know, first of all, it was half and half. It was a gender split, half and half, which was very unusual um, in terms of the memoir genre. Yes. Because if you tend, if you teach personal writing and memoir, you tend to get, it's like 80% female. Right. And so I was surprised to find this 50-50 split, um, particularly because colleges are trending female. But this college, because of its tech, its tech-centric mm. focus... Um, I don't think is. And a lot of the students, I would say about half of them were like literature majors. And, you know, like pursuing that with the same vagary that I pursued an English degree and a liberal arts degree. It's kind of like, what are you going to do with that? Well, I don't know. We'll find out, you know, just sort of leaning into what they found interesting. And then about another half of them were, I mean, there was a STEM major, there was a history major, there was, you know, all sorts of things across the board. And then what was what was interesting to me about it was that, oh, gosh, I think there were five or six. So I had 18 kids in the class. Um, I say kids, but two of them were adult students in their 40s. But I'll say kids. And there were about five or six of them that were children of immigrants. So there was a really interesting diversity, which is, you know, but there was, you know, there was um, one young woman who had come, who had moved from a country in Africa that I can't remember now, unfortunately, um, when she was younger. And, you know, she told a really interesting, where she lived in Africa was very conservative. She moved into the Dallas area and she wrote an essay about the part of what it talked about was the culture shock of, you know, the short skirts and the low tops and like, oh, my God, like all the skin, you know. Because it's it's mm -hmm. the sort of casual sexualization of the female body is something that that is invisible to American eyes at this point because it's been part of our life since the sexual revolution fifty years ago. But other countries don't have that so necessarily, and so you know, it it was jarring to her. I had um, you know a student who was the son of Taiwanese immigrants, you know. Two kids from Vietnam, another one from Eritrea, which is right next to Ethiopia. And they brought very interesting perspectives. The first day, I was about 15 minutes into my spiel. You know, this is who I am. This is the class. And this student just got up and left. And I thought, well, isn't this cool? In college, you can just leave. And um, <laughs> nobody... You know, nobody has to ask for permission. It's just we're all adults here. And then I kept going and I just kept talking and talking and talking. And I mean, 30 minutes had passed and I forgot that she was gone. And she walked back in the class and I was so startled by it that I actually said in front of all the kids, oh, my God, I forgot you were in the class. And she didn't say anything. And she just started walking. Oh, and one of the kids said, Row! did that like Row! noise. And I was like, please don't do that. Oh, no. Because it felt like it ramped up the like, moment. Like cat fight is about yes. to begin kind of sound. Yes. And I was like, we don't, I didn't need that sound effect. Um, and I happen to love that student, but that was a salty moment. And she just walked to her books and left. 
didn't say a word. She picked up her books and walked out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm going to be canceled after 15 minutes. That's it. It's the shortest college career in history. (laughs) And I just I just said to the class, like, wow, that was awkward. And I'm just going to keep going and just kept going. And, you know, we had the rest of the class and and it, you know, I I reached out to that student. I, I had been given mixed advice, you know, like some people said, don't worry about it. That happens. Some people said, if she needs you, she'll reach out to you. Some people said she's probably dropping it. I just decided whatever. It's going to make me easier to it's going to make it easier for me to sleep at night if I just email her. Wait, sorry, hold on a second. But you were just introducing yourself, like sharing your own background. At that moment, was there anything like that you suspected had set her off? Man, you know how when like you're talking to a group of people, you're kind of in a fugue state? <laughs> yes, every, like every a, week or, or one person on a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I didn't think I it, like how much damage could I do in 15 minutes was really the question that was going through my mind as I got home. Um, because later in that class, we did get crossways about I somebody asked me my favorite author and I said David Foster Wallace. And that sparked somebody else. It was actually the same kid that had said, wow. He said stalker. <laughs> and I was like, nope, nope, nope. Right. I want to I want to get to that we'll, moment. We'll get to that in, in a, a second. Because you talk about that in the episode, but let's go back to this, yeah, this one but, student. So but, what had you but said? So, but so that tense moment had not happened yet, you know? And so I'm going, I'm running the recorder back and I'm like, what did I say? I, I do, you know, going into the class, I was aware of this tradition of trigger warnings, but not even sure if they used them anymore and not sure what you know, what the standard was. But I had made a spiel that I thought the genre of personal essay and memoir particularly invited stories of trauma, complication, There that, that over the semester, there was going to be a lot of stuff. There, it would be about abuse. It would be about, you know, dramatic historic passages, tense relationships, you know, so I wanted them to kind of have a blanket trigger warning that was like, if Mm -hmm. you're in this class, you're going to be okay with that. Right. And if you're not okay with that, this might not be the class for you. I'm a a fairly approachable person. It it seemed inconceivable that I could have mortally offended someone within the first 15 minutes of a fairly, you know, anodyne introduction. But I, I just didn't know. I had no measure. I had read all these articles that were about, that seemed to be focused on the short distance between a teacher saying something and a student taking offense. Mm -hmm. That it happened so quickly and then the stakes got raised so dramatically and sort of wound their way up this ever proliferating bureaucracy. Um... Okay, and, but this student who walked out, what happened? So you... I reached out to her and okay. she said, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I was going to email you too. I was having a panic attack. Um, when oh. I when I have a panic attack, it was totally unrelated to the class. You know, when I have a panic attack, I can't really, I can't really engage. Because that was the thing that freaked me out. I said, are you going to leave now? And she just didn't say anything. She just walked out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what just happened? Mm-hmm. Oh, and I said, is it something I said? And mm-hmm. she, and she left. So that student who you know continued to have a little bit of a of a of a rough semester but she you know she is now graduating and and she, and 
by the way, I mean, I, I learned enough about her life to learn that there were a lot of really good reasons. <laughs> this was not a case of somebody being, I think, like unusually or alarmingly sensitive. This was somebody that was legitimately struggling with a lot of stuff in life that that would be that would be challenging for anybody. And and I, I also want to make one blanket statement, which is that about halfway through the semester, it became clear to me that I might want to write about the kids one day. And so I asked them to close their eyes and I said, do any of you have objections? If I ever write about you, I would not, I would not share your names and I would not share personal details, but I, I might like to write about this one day. And none of them had a, objections. So I do feel comfortable talking about them because, yeah. you know, in a classroom like this, you are sharing secrets. You are taking a bit of a trust fall. And I would like, I guess, listeners who might be concerned about that to know that this was something that, that we had discussed. Right. You talk in your uh, solo cast about what was on your syllabus. You have people, you have Maya Angelou, Melissa Phoebos, David Foster Wallace. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. James Baldwin. James Baldwin, of course. Gerald. Yes. Okay. So there's a, you know, you have, you span a number of literary genres and eras. What surprised you about what the students liked and didn't like what they responded to and what they were more resistant to. Were you taken by surprise? A few times, yeah. I mean, the first thing we read was Joan Didion's On Keeping a Notebook. And I think of it as like, almost like a pop song everybody would like. You know, yeah. it's like listening to the Beatles it's or something. It's a nice little starter. Yeah. It's like so short. It's so easy and it's lovely and it has like such lovely phrasing. And I was surprised that a couple of the kids in the class were like, I hate this. And I was like, why? <laughs> and, and, and I had such a mixed reaction to that because I think one of my, one of my fears going into the class was that it, people would have trouble expressing disinterest, disdain, the workshops. Oh, yeah, no, would... they, they, they don't have any trouble with that. Oh, man. <laughs> I didn't happy realize happy to tell that. you that they roundly disapprove of something or downright hate it. So that's not just that I created an environment of honesty. That's a generational thing. No, they love they love nothing more than to tell you that they hate something, especially <laughs> if it's like, you know, a, just part of the literary canon. Yeah. Michelangelo, yeah, overrated. Okay, a, okay, interesting. Well, that surprised me. And I was like, why don't you like her? And this student was just like, I just, I don't know what this lady's going on and on about. I can't. <laughs> It's just rambly. And, and I was like, oh, it's so interesting. You know, I mean, that's a good lesson for me in terms of something that I have dealt with in my own writing and you've written eloquently about, which is the idea that if it's worth writing and someone loves it, someone will hate it. Yeah. Um, and sometimes even at the age of 48 and 25 years into this profession, it can be hard for me to remember that everything that I write that someone loves, someone will hate. Yeah, And so I wanted to instill that idea in them. And so this seemed like it was, you know, right out of the gate. We were we were good. Um, yeah, that surprised me. The, you know, they loved the Fitzgerald essay because it, we read The Crack Up and it was about mental illness mm. and his mm -hmm. depression and drinking too much. And, you know, when that came out, it was so controversial. And, and Hemingway, his, of course, friend and in some ways professional foe, was so, you know, just like, this is so embarrassing. You've just like ruined yourself. And you roll the clock forward 100 years. And that mode of writing is so much more popular than what Hemingway did. I'm not saying Hemingway wasn't profoundly influential. 
and shaped most of the 20th century you know, literature. Well, he, right, exactly. I mean, he shaped Joan Didion's whole yeah, aesthetic, very, so you can see it right there. Yeah, Very much so. But this, but this idea of taking the worst thing that ever happened to you and not tucking it away in the pages of a, of a fictional novel, but airing it out and saying, this happened to me, that is in, incredibly popular, uh, marketable, and clickable. Yeah, he was ahead of his time. But so, th- but the students were not objecting to you know sort of another white man talking about his problems with see, Fitzgerald. I thought, I thought that was going to happen, and not at all, not at all. Th- that that wasn't really a problem. I, I didn't get that, except with uh, there was a little bit of that with Joan Didion. It was kind of like, who's this white lady that's complaining? Oh. But um, but that was very minor. I think the. There wasn't a lot of racialized critique. I will say when we did my Angelou, this this one really s- did surprise me. I wanted to do an excerpt from I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. There isn't a personal essay. They didn't really have personal essays at the time. So it was, you know, how do you find this in a bite size form? And so I had kind of selected two excerpts that I thought might work. One was a little bit like, you know, going to the church and grown up stories. And another one was about the um, incident of molestation that happens that, you know, I had just read or reread. I know why the cage bird sings. And I was really taken aback by how well Angelou writes this passage. It was so unusual at the time. I believe she was the first, you know, kind of high profile writer to be writing an autobiography that contained a passage like that. And it's kind of what makes the book famous and what makes her famous. And so I put this to the class. We have two excerpts. One of them is a little more traditional and one is uh, much more racy. And close your eyes. Again, I always have them close their eyes. (laughs) And which one do you want to read? And there was not one student that voted for the molestation passage not one of them okay and yeah because you mentioned this in the episode too let's let's drill down a little bit so you told them that they Mm -hmm. had the choice between reading two different maya angelo passages so how many pages are we talking like what what did they know what the subject matter was of like the first choice versus the sexual trauma choice I was pretty vague about it you know it was like one is a coming of age excerpt and one of them is about yeah, a sexual trauma. Okay. And I think the reason, so the reason that it struck me is because if I had been in that classroom and you had said, you have two choices, one of these is taboo and one of these is mundane, I would have been like, taboo, taboo, taboo. Like, mm-hmm. I would have been like, I want to read the part. Because I had also said, like, this is kind of what makes it famous. She was the first person writing about this. And it was very striking to me that they were like, hard pass. All Hard, of them, every single one of and them. And when you say close their eyes, so was this a blind vote? Yeah. So they weren't like looking in, around. Yeah, I and... didn't want them to be wow. influenced by anybody else. And it wow. was just 100% not interested in How that. many students were in the class? 18. Okay. And, you know, and what I took from that, or one of the things as I was reflecting on it, I was like, you know, I went to school in the 90s, went to college in the 90s, at a time when those 
stories were uncommon. Yeah. And we live in a world and have particularly existed in a world for the last five years where those stories are everywhere. I know. This is exactly what I was thinking. And because, yeah, and, the, and e- they're everywhere in the literature and they're also everywhere on social online. Media. They're just, yeah, we're swimming and in it. We're swimming in it. It's not special. And it's like, it, not only is it not special, it's like, can I just get a break? Like, right. can I get a break from that? Can we, can we talk about something else? And, you know, the other thing is that the personal essays that they were writing were, I didn't really know what to expect, but at that point we were probably like three or four weeks into the semester and the personal essays were proving, I think, more intense and more open and more, you know, like fraught, interpersonally fraught, like Mm -hmm. with issues around sexuality. Um, There was a little bit about sexual trauma, not a lot, but it was in there. Mm -hmm. And I think it was later I had a, after I recorded that solo cast, um, it was actually just last week, I had like a bit of a, a chit chat session with with some of them on Zoom. And they were saying that they actually found some of the intensity of the personal essays to be one of the hardest things of the class. The that kinda, that they wrote that they wrote, you know, that, that their classmates wrote that they loved it, that they that they that they loved that experience. But the emotional intensity ramped up so fast. Like we we hadn't really gotten to know each other yet. Mm. And so like if I were going to do the class all over again, I would do a little bit more of like a build in like a couple weeks to get to know each other. Um, right. Before right. we blast each other's face off with like the worst thing that ever happened to us. I'm, I'm curious. So they didn't have a sense of wanting to learn how to write about personal issues and trauma in an artful literary way, because that would be the idea of reading Maya Angelou. It's like, look, you can write about this stuff this way, like a real writer does, or you can write about it as if you're on social media. And there's a reason that we read literature. And there's a reason that something that Maya Angelou is considered literature and uh, Tumblr is not. Right. Were they like interested in making that distinction? Well, that was sort of the animating idea of the entire class. Yeah. You know, was like people are writing about themselves all the time. How do you do that with caution and care and rigor and artfulness? So, you know, I would be now guessing. But I think a lot of them would have found it more useful to figure out how to do that while talking about your growing up years. Right. Than talking about that particular issue. Right. And it's hard to write about something while it's going on. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, That's like one of the cardinal sins of memoirs. You got to wait till the event is sufficiently in the past. Right. Which is why a lot of the essays were about their family life. You know, they were about tensions with parents. They were about, they were about, you know, father, son dynamics, mother-daughter dynamics. And, you know, I think also probably germane to that answer is that a lot of them, the the class had not been, because it was added so late, I think, because, you know, it was sort of like a, oh yeah, why don't you you teach a class? It was just called nonfiction writing. And so it it, it didn't, they, a lot of them didn't know what they were signing up for. Right. And so when, when they found out what it was, I, I seriously thought half the class was going to drop it the first day. I mean, I I drove home that night, just sort of like with my head in my hands, like I'm going to have eight students, but miraculously, none of them dropped it in, in, I don't know why. And I think many of the ones that had expressed on the first day, kind of like, well, I don't, 
I didn't know it was going to be this. And this is a little bit weird. You know, by the end of the semester came around and we're like, you know, this is not a genre. Like I wouldn't have necessarily signed up for this class if I'd known what it was, but I'm glad I did. Mm -hmm. It was much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. And, you know, that that was a good feeling. Talk about this moment with David Foster Wallace. Now, his name does not come up a lot these no. days. He was on the tips of everybody's tongues constantly in the 90s. Uh, he uh, obviously celebrated, worshipped, you know, fiction uh, fiction writer, essayist. Uh, Infinite Jest was his tome. Did you actually read Infinite Jest? Sarah? I 100% of it. You d- Wow. Okay. You actually, are... I shouldn't say 100% of it because I did skip some of the French-Canadian high drinks parts. Okay. Well, you're French Canadian. <laughs> the French case. Canadian separatists. So, um, yeah. I actually love infinite jest okay. and found it very easy to get through, which is strange for me. Cause I'm like a little bit of an ADHD reader. Like I, I abandoned books really fast, but there was something about his sort of metabolism at a right as a writer that just worked for my mind. Yeah. And it just, it was like, yeah, a, well, he, yeah, that makes sense actually. Cause he was, had a manic friend yeah. called like, like hypographia. Yeah, is, absolutely. Um, he H- was ab- just kind of addicted to writing. Couldn't stop. Yeah. 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 And I feel like that book with all its like copious footnotes and winding rabbit holes kind of predicts hyperlinks the way that we're yes. going to read in the future. You know, that basically oh, your footnotes, tele- all the footnotes. Yeah, the footnotes are, yeah. to me, I think the footnotes are analog hyperlinks. Interesting. Yeah, good point. And so, you know, he's basically trying to portray the way that the modern mind works, but he doesn't have the infrastructure for it. So it's this, you know, overwhelming, un, you know, non-linear reading experience that can be very frustrating to people, but but it's starting to predict the way that our minds are going to work, which is that like you or I could be reading. This happens to me all the time. I'm reading a very good story, but there's a hyperlink in it. I click on that hyperlink. I go down that rabbit hole and then I come back. I know. See, my I loved David Foster Wallace a, a lot and I especially liked his nonfiction. I know that's kind of like a basic thing to say, but uh, as yes, an essay, it was so, I mean, it was so influential. But my feeling about the footnotes it was like he couldn't make a decision. So much mm-hmm. of writing and creative yeah. work is about choosing. You choose what you're going to say, but mostly you choose what you're not going to say. And it's like he wouldn't omit anything. He wasn't able to just say, okay, I'm not going to go down that path. I'm not going to say that. So he would like load up all these footnotes. And I know that that in and of itself creates an artistic product. Like that's, mm-hmm. that is the creativity, but I don't know. I was always a little bit just like, dude, pick a lane. Like, no, I think that's being totally a fair. I think that's totally fair. And, you know, it just so happens that I liked it, you know, yeah. that it worked for me. And, you know, I mean, I think he, that, that book is something like 1100 pages. And I know his editor, you know, suggested cutting 400 and it was mostly the French separatist sections, the uh, French Canadian separatist mm-hmm. sections. And he was like, okay, thanks for your advice. No, yeah, you know, I mean, right. he, he was like, I'll take out two words. Like, I mean, he was just unbelievably yeah, well, stubborn, get unbelievably preening, yeah. you know? So, so there's a lot of reasons to hate David Foster Wallace, but I also think there are, I would not want those. And this is what happens so often in common disc- today's discourse is like there's all these reasons to hate someone, but that doesn't mean there's not a reason to love them yeah. and to love them deeply. And, you know, so 
I had said. Well, what did you assign for so? Sex? So okay, so actually, I didn't assign him. Well, he came up because they had asked me my favorite book, and or who my favorite writer was. This was a question I had asked of them. We went around the the room, oh, and they told their favorite books. And, and by what the way, kinds of, it was okay, like actually, it was all like sci-fi. Like it was all okay. stuff I didn't know. And 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 oh oh, you'll be interested in this too. I asked them, you know, what are the memoirs that you know? And so I was like, you know, has anybody heard of Eat, Pray, Love? No, zip, no, nothing. Has anybody heard of Wild? No, no, nothing. Angela's Ashes, two hands. Educated, uh, three hands. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I was like, what about Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey? They were like, well, we've heard of Matthew McConaughey. It, it was, I think of memoir as such a, as such a populist genre, but mm. they're not operating in buying books by going to Barnes and Noble. Well, they're not the quote unquote well, book. By the buyers. way, nobody goes to Barnes and Noble. But like, right. yeah, they know the books that are assigned to them. And so when I said, "Do you know Night" by Elie Wiesel? They were like, "Oh, yes, 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 we know that." Because that was assigned in high school. Because that was assigned in high school. But you know, they they had books that I thought had kind of entered into the common language, particularly because they became movies. But the movies yeah. are so old at this point. I mean, those are, Even yeah, but wild. these are like white lady book buyer kinds of books. A, yes. And then Wild is 10 years old. Oh, the at movie. least. Oh, the, the movie. movie. Yes. Yeah. The book more so. Yeah. And it's like, you know, so they're 19. They were nine years old. Right. By the way, I was teaching students that weren't born in when 9-11 happened. That yeah, just, I know. Yeah. Get used just, to it. Yeah. Blew my mind. Yeah. Soon you'll be having like, you know, car mechanics and doctors and surgeons who were not born. Yeah. It's wild. Before 9-11. So, you know, somebody had asked who, they they said, we've answered this question. Now you, because a lot of them were like, oh, I don't know. This is hard. And I was like, got to do it. So they were like, okay, what's yours? And I was like, oh, I don't know. (laughs) And then I said, well, one of my favorites is David Foster Wallace. And then one of my students said, stalker. And I was like, okay. Okay, so let's we're, break that down. We're going to stop right here. And, you know, this was something that I was concerned about because not because I think it's happening particularly in college colleges. I think it's because it's happening around us in common discourse all the time. But where had they... Okay, because let's understand they were referring, I'm assuming, to Mary Carr, who had, you know, she was a poet, writer, very successful memoirist, had written about her relationship with David Foster Wallace. Had they read Mary Carr and that's where they were getting this? It's important to know that the student that said this was in his 40s. It was one of my older students because the rest of the students had never heard of David Foster Wallace. Yeah, because I would actually frankly be impressed if a 19-year-old said stalker David exactly they okay. they didn't even know who he was right they were interested in this debate that was about to take place i mean you know everybody was sort of like oh what's happening who's the stalker what's happening mm-hmm. david wallace's relationship with mary carr was written about she wrote about it in her memoir lit where she didn't name him but sort of had all these you know like he wore a bandana and like i can't remember <laughs> what was her name did she have a name for him there was some kind of michael or something in, in, oh I, did, I think she had like some kind of name. i think she called like, him dave actually oh okay maybe i, I think right. she called him dave and then but it just you know nobody ever thinks they of had David. a tumultuous yes. relationship i mean they deserved each other in a lot of well, ways i mean they, look he, you know yeah. it is clear that that person in that memoir has anger issues you know, there's a point where he throws a table across yes, the room. Yes. You know, but I think things got a lot more complicated when Wallace killed himself 
and then had exited the conversation and was sort of sainted in the media. Right. And the subject of a very high profile biography by DT Max called Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. When it came out, it came out a little bit before the Me Too era. But I remember on Twitter, Mary Carr, again, who is a very popular memoir writer in her own right. I mean, she wrote The Liars Club. She wrote Cherry. All of her books become bestsellers. She is arguably a a better selling writer than Wallace. And she said, you know, I told DT Max about Wallace's history of violence and being a stalker and he never put it in the book. And, you know, I, and I find this whole thing really fascinating because actually, I mean, I would be a little bit more sympathetic with this if Mary Carr hadn't written her own memoir. Mm. I mean, you wrote a 500 page memoir. So why did you put it in the book? She did not put that in the book. So it's not like she had said her piece. She, I don't, I think I think she made the point that like she had kind of downplayed it while he was still alive, but now that he was dead and they were going to be doing this kind of thorough reckoning with his legacy, why was you know she wanted this to come out now? And you know, there's an interesting conversation. I I have never seen DT Max, who is a respected biographer, and and I love by the way I love that book. Uh, Every love story is a ghost story. I found it beautiful, but I don't know the truth of Wallace's life. I never knew the guy. So why did he not include this? Did he not include this because, you know, when you're doing a piece of journalism, you have to have like two or three people corroborate it and he couldn't find the corroborators. Did he think that it would steal? I I don't don't know. I'd just be guessing. But it became, you know, especially because this this sort of now this is 2016, 2017, you know, you drop this little pebble into Twitter and you watch it become headline clickbait everywhere. And so I don't know what my student had read, but it wasn't surprising to me that his sort of like somehow in the echoes of social media and, you know, kind of doom and gloom, let's get him, especially let's get the the sort of literary darlings of an earlier age world that we lived in, that somehow his his one word description of wallace was stalker and who was this guy like was he a reader like where would he is this just like a guy who's just following social media like anybody else so that was is my guess yeah i mean there's not rose to the surface of his awareness kind of a punk dude like you know lived in new york in his 20s is now going back to to college in his 40s i mean you know Mm -hmm. wore cool clothes and had cool glasses i mean so when yeah when he said stalker yeah okay so you the moment that sort of drops like a lead balloon and does anybody else say anything what did you say in that moment no i immediately stopped him you know i just said hey we're we're i'm gonna just go ahead and take this moment to say i don't know if wallace is a stalker or not there's certainly an argument that he is we can talk about that and we can have really interesting conversations about what portion of people's questionable behavior should be brought in to evaluate evaluate their literary output and their legacy. But what we're not going to do is reduce people to one word, you know, labels. Mm-hmm. This class is about expanding your understanding of them, not contracting. And what did he say? Fair enough. Yeah, he didn't argue. Okay. 
Okay. I think my tone, <laughs> he was being a little bit like side eye under the breath. And I brought the hammer down. Well, he was also showing off that he knew something about David Buster Wallace. He was Maybe. showing off to you. Maybe. And, you know, all of these kids, this is something that he knows that they don't. Maybe so. You know, I, I, I don't know. But, uh, but I, I do know that that particular, we were going to be reading a lot of people that you could hang out to dry if you wanted to. Um, it's, it's, it's my personal opinion that you can do that with pretty much anybody. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, and, yeah, and so, so did the, okay. So then how did these students, were they interested? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like there's so much dis discussion around this and there's a book out now called Monsters by Claire Dieterer that's yeah. about this very thing. Like, do we separate the artist from the art? Mm -hmm. It's the, it's a timeless question. How willing were the students to engage with that question? The only other time I can remember it coming up is that I had them listen to the Rick Rubin podcast on Barry Weiss's Honestly podcast. And Rick Rubin is a famous music producer. He's say. a music producer, but he had put out a book on creativity that I found so kind of like fully stirring, like like hmm. inspirational and beautiful. And I thought that we needed a little bit of a break. I just liked the idea of of making this an assignment. They loved it. It was one of the things the most universally loved thing we read all semester. But there is a point where Barry asks Ruben, you know, what do you think about basically people getting canceled for certain ideas, dangerous ideas? Mm -hmm. And Ruben, whose, whose career started in the rap world, it's expanded quite dramatically, but some of the early artists he worked with included the Beastie Boys and then people like the Ghetto Boys who were doing you know, kind of horror gangster rap. And he's like, I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's somewhere around the idea that there are bad people, but no bad ideas kind of mm -hmm. thing. I hope that's not a misrepresentation, but it's close enough. And that, there were two students in the class that fought back very hard against that. I mean, both of them, and, and I really was proud of my class because they would do this a lot. You know, they'd say like, I love this and I love that. Like they weren't making, you know, like, like total dismissals of things. Even when they didn't like something, they would fight, you know, like, this is what I like about it. But then they would say, but I really strongly disagree with this idea. And I could feel the energy change in the room. Like there were just a couple of moments, I would say like five or six moments in the entire semester where a culture war issue entered the classroom and it was like you could feel the energy shift. And one of them was actually Barry Weiss, Barry Weiss's name. Were, um, you, were you reading something that she wrote or did well, her name well, just no, come because, up? Because the Rick Rubin podcast was on the Barry Weiss Oh, did you have them listen podcast. to it? Yes. Oh. I had them did listen they to know? it. Okay, no, so, so none of them except for one student knew who she was. And so when it came his turn. He said, you know, well, I really don't like Barry Weiss. And I was like, well, okay, I'm just going to stop. I should have just let it go. I'm learning. <laughs> but I stopped him. And I was like, well, tell me why. And he was like, oh, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, what what about, did he say, actually? Because no, but this it was is like always she, a great test. They can never actually it was a, with anything. Because she wants to cancel the woke mob and she is always, you know, she's canceled Palestinian speakers at Columbia. <laughs> when she and was I was like, 19 years I, I said old. when she was 19. And he was like, oh, I didn't know it was that long ago. 
I just read it on Wikipedia. And I was like, well, I hope that none of you have to face the experience of watching your life's work be crowdsourced on Wikipedia one day. You know, because I, I know so many people that have Wikipedia entries that it's just like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, too yeah. bad. You know, you don't get to fact check your own Wikipedia page. And people that tend to make them tend to be people that are super fans or that are super not fans. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, there it was very, oh, this was a really interesting moment. Or I would say it's like the third or fourth week. One of the kids said to me, I said something about technology. And he was like, you sound like Joe Rogan. And everybody kind of laughed, you know, because it was just there was just this awareness that like sounding like Joe Rogan was a bad thing. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. And it kind of became a running joke between me and that student. It was fine. But later I said something else about technology. And this other student goes, you sound like Ted Kaczynski. And I was like, <laughs> I, I go, what? which one? And, which, which would you prefer? What? I, uh, you'd be like, and oh, I, thank I, God. Thank I God that I, you've. Uh, you oh, know, my God. The, the, and, and, I, the I, Joe Rogan reputation has been uh, oh I've yeah lifted from me, so yes, thank, I can now level up yes. to this. And I turned <laughs> like I must have turned like evil eyes on her because she just like her whole like she and I said what and she said the Unabomber and I was like no I, I know who Ted Kaczynski <laughs> is. I'm wondering how you know Ted Kaczynski, and I'm wondering what on earth I said that would have made you think that about me. And she kind of got like I don't. I don't know. It just—it's just something. I don't know. I shouldn't have said it. She's a very sweet student, but but she had blurted something out and then wanted to take it back. I could feel, and somebody else in the room said, "You know, Kaczynski had this manifesto that was about kind of all about yeah, he like, against had technology." A, a David Foster Wallace uh, vibe to him, Ted Kaczynski. Did he? I think. Oh yeah, no. I think this could you could this could easily be construed as a huge compliment. She was a very was a smart maximalist uh, writer. I, I, I oh, bet Ted Kaczynski so had a lot of footnotes. I, well, look, I bet. You know what? She's a very, very smart student and she was probably right. I probably did sound like Ted Kaczynski, but I said to her and I said, and this is, I said to the class, listen, we're not going to do this thing where we characterize, like I was trying to make a genuine point about technology. Yeah. And I felt like what she said just cut me off at the knees. And I was trying to do that thing of creating a classroom where people feel comfortable, but not bringing in stuff that's like, Oh, I'm going to just cut you off at the knees yeah. with this. And, you know, later she and I had an interesting conversation on email. She felt bad that she had said it. I explained my objection to it. She agreed that it was, you know, entirely not what she meant to say. You know, that I think she was trying to be funny like because somebody had said Joe Rogan earlier. So it's like, oh, this will be funny, too. And it just it's, it wasn't to me. And I think I had a hypersensitivity probably that I was going to be perceived as, I don't even know what, like out of touch or something. Well, exactly. Old. I mean, Old, the problem yeah. with both of those references is that they're quite dated. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that she even knew who Ted Kaczynski was or that he wrote anything. I mean, it's not like this is taught in the classroom. I was really impressed with my students. I mean, this was this was a, a you know, this is not the like prestige college in in Dallas, but I came to be very impressed both by their intellectual curiosity and their depth, their warmth. I mean, I I really loved my students and we've talked a lot about, you know, some of the moments that were like trigger moments for me uh to use an overused <laughs> verb, but I think I want to express how deeply I cared about them and how 
profoundly attached, I felt, to them by the end of the semester. I mean, by the time everyone had sort of walked out on the plank of the personal essay and shared about their lives and, you know, you just you end up feeling very close with each other. And it was like, oh, I don't want to leave now. You know, like, I, I want to keep teaching. Like, let's do this again next semester. Well, um, what? Yeah. I mean, did you have conversations just ab- about the censorious nature of the culture in which they find themselves? Did you talk about sensitivity readers? Did you get a sense of how they actually feel about what's going on? No, because it was not, you know, they're 19 and 20. And they read, those are YA books. I mean, that whole world is grown up inside it. Right. See, I'm operating from a world where it used to be a different way. And now I'm negotiating this new way. And is it good? Is it bad? Is it better? Is it worse? But they don't have that comparative. And it didn't seem to me, like some of the conversations about technology were getting into censoriousness, you know? And and, and by the way, I mean, like I, I think at some point in the semester, they would have Googled me you know, and and probably might have found the story I wrote for The Atlantic about the things I'm afraid to write about or, you know, but these were these were not things I brought up in class mm-hmm. in part because I have to say anytime the culture wars stuff came into the classroom, it felt like it tilted us off the axis. axis. Yeah. Yeah. It got people into their own camps in ways that it felt like all the other literature that we were reading, in part because it wasn't from our era, our very era right now, most Mm -hmm. of it. You know, as we got later in the semester, it was. But then the early part, you know, they're reading James Baldwin notes from a native son. And it's like, nobody thought that was politically fraught, even though it was incendiary at the time. Right. See, I think that this is very encouraging because these are undergraduates. I feel like this generation is more open-minded and frankly sick of what's been going on in a way that maybe graduate students are less likely to be. Um, I think things may be starting to shift. This is kind of a way of rebelling, right? To, to not care about the sensitivity reading conversation as much. Well, one of the dynamics that became clear to me in the class was that, you know, these are Zoomers, these are Gen Zers for the most part. But there were, in addition to two 40-something students, I also had two millennials, two 30-somethings. And I actually just thought they were 19 at the time. Um, (laughs) But I learned later they were older students. And um, there was an interesting dynamic that developed where where a lot of dismissive things were said about millennials. And then the two millennial students would kind of like, you know, jokingly bristle or silently say, Like what kinds of things? Um, I'm trying to remember. It was like, well, we were reading something and I don't want to say what it was because I kind of don't. Yeah, I kind of don't want to say what it was, but it had some cuss words. And that were very salty. Uh, There was a way of talking. And one of the students said, it's just so millennial. Oh, like that kind of vernacular, like like, like a can, ve- like a very yeah. thrusty, like a very thrusty in your face. Well, that's no, like no I can write for the given. internet. That that be, that came it's, out of it came I'm out not the writing for the printed page. I'm writing for the internet, and I can say fuck over and over again, and exactly. it makes me sound extra political. Yeah, if you in, you insert fucking in front of anything, it makes you sound edgy and transgressive, and therefore it's some kind of political 
statement. It's just so lazy in my view. But it, yeah, that's well, it, and it is yeah. lazy and it's not great writing, but it also was very endemic to the time. Right. And so this was something that had been published, I think, probably around 2011 or 12. And so it definitely had that imprint. And she mm-hmm. said, like, oh, I just found it kind of trite, like very millennial. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Like, and that's I was how like, we talked about the boomers. Yeah. And right? I said, what What do you mean by that? And she was like, I don't know. It just reminds me of like, keep, you know, stay. What, what did she say? Like, stay calm and eat a cupcake or something like that. You know, like those, those oh. the, the whole design. Yes. What, what, what is it? Stay, well, there was the keep calm and carry on, you know, art posters that were everywhere. I don't know. I don't remember the cupcake one. But. Well, there were like a million different versions of keep calm and do your yoga. Keep calm. Oh. And, Keep calm and, you know, drink have a Red a, have Bull a or whatever the fuck. Yeah. I don't know what it was. <laughs> right. Right. I don't know. But it was just sort of like, you know, this aesthetic of kind of like yoga and cupcakes. Uh. And, and you know, I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's, I didn't realize that these younger millennial, not younger Zoomers would have, of course they would, like a rebellious disdain that mostly comes from having older siblings. Hmm. You know, that like you don't necessarily want to be like or you have to differentiate yourself from. But we didn't, you know, we didn't get into a lot of those conversations. I will say I couldn't tell if it was because we were in Dallas, which is not a coastal city in case you don't know your geography, but is also on balance a more conservative city. I will say that there was like a blanket like, oh, you know, Trump's an idiot. We none of us like religion like there, like it had very college, you know, kind of presumptions. But we did have a conversation about Melissa Phoebos's essay on consent. Mm-hmm. And that was a really interesting one because they just all they, they did. They loved the essay for the most part. And I should say for the most part, because I don't know, maybe some of them didn't. But I don't even remember people saying anything bad about it. But they said they wanted to talk about the subject. They, they wanted yeah. to just, they just want to talk about consent. They just want to talk about consent. And the conversation, I thought, was very interesting. And I had a male student, like, like one of the women was saying, one of the young women was saying, you know, this just reminds me all the ways that you have to constrain your body as a woman and you can't do this and you can't do that. And then one of the male students said, you know, I know that's historically been the way it is, but I feel like that's shifting. And I feel like, that burden is on men. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that like you could get roasted on the Internet for saying it. But it's so true. Yeah, that piece. So I, you're referring to Melissa's uh, piece about consenting. I, I can't remember the name of it. Consenting to touch. I've never. I spent my life consenting to touch. I didn't want. Right. And she it's from her book, Body Work. Uh, oh, it's from Body Work. It? Okay, I thought or, it was from Girlhood. But- oh, you know what? Correction, that may be true. Body Work is a is a craft book which mm-hmm. um, talks about similar issues. I think you're right. Yeah, it's from Girlhood. Anyway, she's a gorgeous writer. Gorgeous. And um, God, that piece was so interesting to me too. Not to get derailed, but like you know, it made me consenting, spending your life consenting to you know touch that you never, or, you know, enduring touch that you never consented to. That has so many forms. Like I remember, and I'm sure this is not what she meant, but I do think it's relevant. I remember being like in elementary school and there was this thing where if you had long hair and there was a girl behind you, she would start just spontaneously braiding your hair. Did you experience this? Totally. Well, I I never got to have long hair, but I saw it. I 
hated this. And it was like this weird culture of girls touching each other and touching their Girl hair stroking. and kind of petting their hair. And I never had sisters and I didn't have like a very, you know, that kind of like close physical relationship with my mother. It just wasn't part of my sensory world. And I hated it. And I felt so violated. And I never oh, so felt like I could turn around to the girl and be like, stop it. Yeah, of course. And that kind of thing goes on a lot in, in all sorts of ways. It's not just sexual. Well, it was, and that became clear in the conversation because some of the things that we talked about were like one young woman talked about a colleague hugging her at work and always hugged her and she just really bothered her and she didn't know how to say anything about it. Another student told a story about someone, this, this one kind of blew my mind. She said that somebody had put out his hand to shake hands and she found it so aggressive. Oh, really? And I was like, <sighs> oh, wow. You know, we're dealing with several things here. One is shifting gender roles, shifting notions of, of comfort. But the other one is the pandemic thing yeah. that brought about on one extreme level, a sort of isolation and germophobia or xenophobia. And I, I'm not xenophobia, uh, agoraphobia. agoraphobia. And, and that's not, that's not this student at all, but on a much lesser degree, a kind of questioning of what touch was even Safe, and I don't mean sexually safe. I mean, safe, like shaking hands was a way of doing business. It was the, it was the polite yeah. way. It was, well, it, it's a, it's also a class signifier. It's a, it's a social signifier because, and the, the whole air kissing on the cheek is a class signifier. That's right. And I, I brought up the fact that, you know, in France, they, they kiss you on each cheek and they were like, oh my God, you know, and, and actually, like when I, when I go to Europe, I've seen every once in a while I'll see people kiss on the lips. And yeah. I'm like, what is happening? I what know. is happening? I don't, I'm not comfortable with that at all. Um, I, I have my own zones of comfort, but I happen to be a hugger. And it's, I don't want to say startles me because that's too strong, but it surprises me when students that I know to be warm and lovely and there's nothing in them that's sort of telegraphing stay away from me, in other words, express how uncomfortable they are made by that kind of touch. I know. Oh, and this... I didn't know how to deal with it. No, it's so this is I feel like this is this warrants an entire episode yeah. because the hugging thing, um, it's more noticeable now because not people aren't doing the the cheek kiss thing. I mean, the cheek kiss thing is not just European. That's like New York literary circles that mm. was always going on, right? You would go mm. to a cocktail party and you'd be kissing everybody on the cheek and it would be awkward mm. and you would miss and sometimes you do oh hit somebody on the lips. I mean, it's just God. awful. I and once like, did that with my mom and I kissed her on the lips and I've never forgotten it. It's oh, like, it happens. Oh God, I mean, it my mom, I kissed my mom. Oh God. Well, yeah, but I mean, at least it's your mom. I mean, it's just, it, it's like, it's such an <laughs> awkward negotiation. And and it's like, if you don't do it, then you look kind of rubbish or awkward. And yeah, the hug thing I've, uh, so I'm happy that the air kiss thing has kind of fallen away with the pandemic, but now we're left with the hug. And I find myself like, if I don't go to do it, I feel sometimes like the person is insulted, but well, then this if is I the, do so, do it. So I, this is the uh, problem with the breakdown of social custom. Yes. Because what it means to you is not what it means to me. And therefore, right. there is no social signifier. This has been going on in dating for so long because just to use an example, 
whether or not a woman offers to pay for the date. The custom was always that men pay. Oh, yeah. She reaches for her wallet and he goes, she reaches for her wallet and he goes, no, no, no. (laughs) And that was just the custom. But that started to shift as women started to be like, well, I should pay for this, too, because I want a partner. I want an equal, you know, like I want equality in the boardroom. So why don't I ask for equality on this date? And I would hear these different things of like guys saying, oh, when she tries to pay for a date, it means she's not interested. And then other oh. men would say, no, when she tries to pay for a date, it means she is interested. <sighs> she re- So you basically have the same signifier, meaning two opposite things. And this is happening right. all over our culture, where our social customs, we are so polyglot. We are so in between kind of you know, we don't have a culture that's shaped by religion. We, we don't have common experiences so much anymore. We're split into tribal tribes. And so there is not a shared language of connection. And for people like me that kind of thrive on connection, that is something that it gives me a small measure of stress. Yes. To wonder, you know, how do I express to this person that I feel close to them, that, that this is a meaningful interaction, but not like it, it's just it's tough. And and to my students point, I think men feel this a lot. You know, do I look? Do I not look? Yeah. Do I touch? Do I not touch? How much looking is flirtation? How much flirta- how much looking is aggression? You know, I, I do think that in some ways the burden of anxiety has shifted onto them. And I'm not saying it's shifted off of women. I'm just saying men feel it in a, in a newly pressing way. You know, I think this is a problem. It's one of the many things that I feel like it's one of those micro, micro movements away from each other. I know. Oh, there's so much to say about this. I used to touch people a lot more. I'm not a touchy person, but I used to, I, I used to sort of like, I would touch somebody on the knee or like I would make a point, like I would lean forward. I would, you know, kind of just like there would be a sort of intimacy of of body language within the context of a conversation that I'm mindful of not doing anymore. Yeah, me too. Uh, And it's a loss. I'm I'm a touch junkie. I would have been the one behind you braiding your hair if I'd known how Uh, to braid hair. I would have slapped you across Uh, the face. Well, now that we're friends, it would have been fine and I would have (laughs) laughed. But, you know, actually who I was was the one with the curly hair that my mom kept really short because she thought that was cute. No, it wasn't. And I wanted long hair so bad. And I loved the girls with the corn silk hair. You know, it was just like a little walking doll. I think that's uh, my hair. That yeah, maybe that's what it was. You, too, I'm my hair sure was just very soft. It was like freaking it's, gorgeous. Very, you know, well, not gorgeous because it was so fine, but it was very soft. Yeah. Oh yeah, I had people would come. There was a guy in college in my dorm who used to come out just be like, "Can I?" Can I just touch your hair? See, this happens to white girls too. <laughs> Can I right? touch your hair? Can I touch your and hair? It was just because it was just bizarrely soft. And I never thought of, it wasn't sexual or creepy or anything. It was just like a weird, like, sure, I'm going to charge you a dollar. But The yeah. awkwardness <laughs> of, of being in a human body yeah, feels exactly. like it's getting, you know, we have this weird open culture where everything's okay and every choice is fine and no choice is better than the other. And at the same time, we're kind of retracting from each other. 
and and to have these two things at once, these new social taboos. I mean, it was very interesting to me that in talking about Melissa Phoebos's essay, which was, you know, which talks openly about her being a sex worker, there was no snickering. There was no laughing or, or disdain. It was like, oh, you know, she she worked as a dominatrix. That's sure. Why not? Mm-hmm. None of that. But then you have these new taboos where it's sort of like Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, you know, like. Right. Right. And so I was figuring out where those were. And also, you know, I forgot where I was going with that. But the point is, um, it's very difficult to balance the openness of our culture with the unspoken and ever shifting protocols of a changing world. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's the paradox. You're right. I think you put that that beautifully. Well, we're going to move on to the bonus in a minute, but I want to make sure to ask you, you were teaching personal essay, you're teaching writing, they're writing things. Was there any discussion about publishing? Did any of them want to be published authors? How do you handle the fact that you are essentially teaching them something that one cannot even begin to make a living from anymore? Right. I mean, I wanted to make that very much a part of this semester. I had been lecturing and interacting with people that had gone to colleges and MFA programs where they graduated without really sort of any sense of the market. And having only been in the market, I found that atrocious, like Mm -hmm. absolutely unforgivable, that you would take someone's money and not teach them at all how to use that skill And so one of the early lessons that became a sort of drumbeat throughout the semester was that writing can always be a part of your life, that it's free, that it's always available to you. It can be a private pleasure. It can be, you know, something that you you try to do professionally, but I would not recommend it as a career path. And I also felt like if somebody is like ballsy enough to want that anyway, good, good for them, push against it. You know, Mm -hmm. prove me wrong. But I found it intellectually dishonest to come into a class that I was teaching in part because I felt like the entire financial structure that I had been standing on was crumbling and then encourage kids to go stand on it and jump on it. Well, isn't it that it's ironic, isn't it? All the people who can't, you know, make it as working writers anymore bail ourselves out by going and teaching other people to do this thing that we can't do. So and exactly. that's why we ended up there. And it had struck me over the years that it was something of a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, you know, it that, is. That, you know, we were making more MFA students to teach more MFA students because they couldn't get, you yeah. know, Well, jobs. this is what Lee Stein will talk about. She exactly. talks about how MFA programs are a multi-level marketing scheme, which I, think I remember that's... that. I, you know, and I, I never got an MFA, but I mean, I wanted to at one point. And somebody basically told me, like, just go to YouTube, like, just watch, like, watch also, some YouTube I mean, just videos. Write. You are already doing a job just, and publishing no, work that people would kill uh, to do in the MFA program. But so. the thing is, I wanted something else. I wanted a writing community yeah, and I wanted right. deadlines because right. I wanted to try my hand at fiction and I couldn't seem to make myself do it. And I, you know, so, OK, how do you do that? You go join an MFA program. It's what most people do is they can't write on their own. So give me deadlines. Give me you know, give me a grade. And it appealed to me, but I was quickly dissuaded from this by many people, including many people who'd done MFAs. And, you know, I thought that it would be 
malpractice, honestly, like professional malpractice, not to be honest with them about the landscape. And and during the semester that we were working together, ChatGPT came out. So of course that was another oh. wrench. I mean, as if as if things hadn't been destabilized enough already by everything else, then it's suddenly like, oh, AI is going to do this in the future. And, you know, what are the jobs even going to be? And I do believe that there will be a huge opportunity for people that have the warmth of a human voice because things will be automated. Things will sound like they were written by computer until the chat GPT 10 or whatever, like the next super good. And like, I'm just sit back and go like, this is better than. Yeah, how do people David know Foster that this Wallace. conversation right now isn't yeah. completely AI? <laughs> I mean, it probably is. I mean, essentially it is in the sense that I'm, we're part of the art, I don't even know. Um, but, you know, there will, oh, I think, at least for a little while, there will be a tremendous hunger for things that have the intimacy of one-on-one connection, whether through writing, podcasting, kind of immersive exhibits, just things that bring us back to each other because we're going to start hungering for each other in ways that we can't name, you know, as we become more and more isolated. And so I do think there's opportunities there. And I, yes, there were students that wanted to write books. There were students that wanted to write memoirs. I was not going to disavow them of that. I was just going to disavow them of the idea that A, it would be easy, or B, it would be lucrative, or C, it would be a viable career path. And by the way, you played a great role in this too, because Megan came in and talked to my class. And one of the things she was actually <laughs> trying to leave on, that part out, but yeah. Well, okay. you were fantastic because you broke down for them basically, like, you know, if you get $200,000 for a book, which if you did, that's oh. a huge boon. I said $100,000 because I'm oh, did bad you at say- math. Yeah, it's just easier okay, to do you said than 100. math. Okay, right, sorry. but it, yes, exactly. But exactly. Like you start off asking them, do you think that a $100,000 book advance? sounds like something you'd be excited about. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. And they say, of course. And then you and break then, it down. And and it just basically, it's like holding a rock that just crumbles in their hand so that they're just holding a pebble by the end. Yeah. And, you know, it was, I think, a necessary disillusioning. You know, th- there, there used to be, a, I think, when I was coming up, especially in art classes, the mantra was like, dream big. You don't have to just be a teacher or, you know, a bank teller. You can be an artist. You can be a writer. You could do this. And over the years, I've been asked to come give these speeches to young children, not young children, but like teenage kids, you know, tell them like they don't have to just be doctors and they can be writers. And I'm sort of like, they know that. Yeah. And they don't need to hear that from me. They don't need to hear dream big. Because they've been hearing that for a long time. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of like the post 60s. Yes. That just became just 50 the years assumption. of it. Right. And the dream got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's like, what I need you to do is you can keep dreaming, but I need you to have like a little reality in there. Dream smart. It should dream, be dream yeah, smart. Dream big and dream smart. Like dream big, but pay your rent. We're going to move now into part two of this conversation. Normally, this would be the bonus content for paying subscribers, but I'm happy to make it available to everyone this week. So enjoy. Okay, we're going to do some bonus content. Thank you for sticking around on this Saturday morning. I'm excited. 
Yeah, so I thought we would revisit um, a piece that you re-upped for Mother's Day. This is actually a piece that you first published last year called On Not Being a Mother. It's just an absolutely gorgeous and profound and deeply intelligent Mm. original piece. So I don't know, let's just jump into it. Why did Mm. you write it? Why did you re-up it? How do you feel about it a year later? You know, I, I wrote it at a period of time when I was writing really fast. I don't know how essays come for you, but I, I tend to have sort of wet and, and dry seasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I was in a wet season. And so I was just writing a lot. And we had just started the Smoke em If You Got Em podcast. And so I was, you know, I was still sort of like, is this going to be, am I going to do essays? Is it going to be podcasts? Like, what is it going to be? And one morning I woke up and I, and this essay just sort of tumbled out. You know, I, I have all sorts of different experiences with essays. Some of them are tortured. Some of them are super fast. This was a super fast one. And that usually means that they've been cooking for a long time inside of me. Yeah. And I will also say that I have been working on a second memoir for the better part of like four years. And it's sort of had a shifting axis. And where it's sort of settled eventually is is this one. You know, it's it's the 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 focus of the book, which is, you know, takes place during my 40s when I was I am single, uh, thought that I might have children and decided not to uh, was chasing various men. And so it had different focuses, foci at different times. But oh, we kind foci. of foci. Is that the plural of focuses? Out. Yeah. Okay. Listen to me. Go. Oh, you own that. All right. Yeah. Solo cast. Um, <laughs> that's just what I say now and <laughs> when I want to be fancy solo cast. Yeah. But, uh, I think this is the heart of the book that I wanted to write. And I think this essay without my even, even knowing it announced that before mm. I was even ready to listen to it. You know, I was still back in the weeds with like, well, can it be about love addiction? Is it about guys? Is it about dating? You know, and it was like this essay popped out and was like, no, actually, this is the thing that you have to share uniquely. Because I think with with every story I write, whether it's an essay or a book, the question you're asking is, what can I share that hasn't been told yet? And some topics are easier than others. And the topic of Mother's Day, which was, you know, here's this holiday that the last few years I had experienced it. It was just almost like it was almost like a grief day because so many of my friends' mothers had died. Mm. and whatever complicated feelings I had about not being a mother, which I never really experienced mother, Mother's Day as like anything other than like ugh, obligation, you know, like got to do something for my mom. I was starting to realize that I would never be a mother, and that was a heavy knowledge. At least I would never be a mother in the traditional way of having a child in my body because I had closed the door on IVF and and art. What's it called? Art. Oh, assisted reproductive assisted technology. Reprodu- I just love that the I just love that the acronym is ART. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, I, I was realizing that, and at the same time, I had friends who had had miscarriages, or they were trying to get pregnant, and they, you know, it it just seemed like this holiday that was meant to kind of celebrate women was kind of universally dragging everyone down. Anywhere. Which was invented by a woman who never had children, by the way. Is the it? inventor of Mother's Day. Yes. She, um, her who name is she? Was, uh, I will look it up. I think it's Jarvis. Yeah, she never had kids and she regretted inventing Mother's Day. Oh. Yes. Her name is Anna Jarvis. And um, what year is it invented? She founded Mother's Day 
Following her mother's death in 1905, she conceived it as a way of honoring sacrifices mothers made for their children. And the idea was that, you know, children would send cards to their mothers and kind of thing. But, you know, she was one of 13 kids, only four of whom lived to adulthood. I'm reading this off of the wick of the internet right now. Yeah, I, just, I, I don't have this, this information at my fingertips. Of, yeah. But she never had children herself. And she ended up hating the holiday and thinking it was the dumbest thing ever. So anyway, it's my little footnote there. Well, she, that's a potted history of my experience as well. Like, other than losing my mother, you know, it's just sort of like, well, this is a good idea. No, it's terrible. And I think I'd had an interaction at a massage. I'd taken a friend of mine to get a massage. Her birthday's in May. And I'd gotten a massage. And when I left, the guy said, happy Mother's Day. And I just was like, ah. And it's not like that hadn't happened to me before. It it was fraught for me in multiple ways because I was dealing with my weight at the time. I have been up and down on the scale all my life. And around that time, I had put on some weight. And I was like, you know, basically, I thought he, it was an awareness that my body had changed, you know. Mm. And um, that he had looked at my body and he had decided it was a mother's body. Oh, my God. It's amazing the way we interpret oh, oh, things. Oh, like, oh. That, yeah. Can I, wow. I, I yeah. am like ground speed lightning fast by taking something that's innocuous and making it an arrow that points directly into my own heart. Like, can I do that? Like, watch me run. And <laughs> I... So I went downstairs and I told my friend who also doesn't have children. And I was like, you told me happy Mother's Day. And she was like, don't make this about your weight. And I was like, it, I, <laughs> I am going to. And, and it was like all. It's those moments. I remember this right after sobriety. Um, when I first quit drinking, which was like 12 years ago at this point or 13 years ago, people would ask me questions like, how are you doing? And I would be like, stop fucking interrogating me. You mm. know, like when, again, we're talking about the breakdown of social customs. When something that is expressed as innocuous at, you know, at worst and at best, you know, kind of well-intentioned and lovely. And it's received as like, who gave me this poisoned art? And I was interested in that. I was interested in exploring it for myself. I think we had, my podcast with Nancy had just started and we had only recently done an episode on my abortion that mm. I had at the age of 30, which was a story I had never told publicly. And probably more than anything, that was pressing me on to write this story because talking about the abortion I had at 30, which I did because Roe v. Wade had gone back to the state that had been overturned in the state where I live, which is Texas. Oh, right. And you came on, actually, remember to talk about it at that time, because we talked about what it was like to be in Texas with, you know. That's just, right. Just you and I talked about it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I did a podcast with Nancy. And then I also went on your show at, at, for a separate reason. And we talked about it. And maybe they might they might be in different orders. I can't remember. But I was talking about it for the first time, in part because I knew it was going to be part of this new book. I wanted to kind of get my training wheels on. And it was the most moment, right? Like there was this cultural flashpoint, which was that Roe v. Wade was being walked back. And the decision that I made 18 years ago, I would not necessarily have been able to make. Now, I, I actually don't know how driven would I have been anyway. Would I have gotten the pill? You know, 
would I have gone to another state? I, I, I can't say. But that had been a very huge sliding door moment in my life, and mm-hmm. it wouldn't be so easy to slide that door in the future. And so it was an interesting moment to reflect on that. Also, because when I got that abortion, I had been coming out of a long-term relationship. It was breakup sex. Great. Perfect. Um, <laughs> You're and always most fertile during just, breakup oh, sex. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Like ready, ready to pop as soon as, as soon as, yeah. <laughs> and I got pregnant and um, I wanted to keep the child and get back together. And my boyfriend said, you know, we're not getting back together. And so I made what I considered to be the more rational decision, which was to end that pregnancy with the idea that in the future I would be doing it the right way, you know, quote unquote, the right Right. way. Right. And, you know, 18 years down the road with a lot of near misses and potholes and interesting choices and triumphs and failures, it was kind of like, well, this is what you got, kid. So, and I think I've always been interested, I certainly have been inspired by your example, and I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you. I actually, uh, and I know you don't like compliments, but you're going to have to take a few of them. Okay, um, we'll we, it's in the bonus, and, so and it's okay. We, yeah, it's Go okay. Ahead. It's okay. And we've talked about this before, but you know, you wrote a story called The Difference Maker, which I still consider one of the best essays I ever read on the subject of not having children. It opened a channel in me that I didn't even know had scar tissue around it Mm. because I was at the time finishing up my first memoir. I was so focused on the sort of drinking, sobriety, young, reckless youth thing. But I was 40. You know, I was 40 and I didn't even really think about it that much because here's the other thing about not having kids. You don't have the little yardstick of time growing up alongside you to remind you that you're getting older. Right. Which is how I end up teaching a college class of 18-year-olds and being like, holy crap, all of you guys were born after 9-11. Yeah. Because age becomes something that's a little bit invisible to you as you get older. So when I read that story, it was like, whoa, I have thought these. I still remember the email I sent to you because we didn't know each other super well at the time. And I, I said, I have had these thoughts. I have, like, it had that beautiful thing that I think personal essay can do which is to feel as though you are reading your own kind of chaotic, inarticulated thoughts mm, in mm-hmm. an elegant stream articulated by somebody else that you've never met. And it has that serendipitous feeling of like, yes, that's it. That's, that's how I felt. Now, a difference between us, and that story had a little bit more ambivalence in it because you were married at the time. Your husband wanted a child. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a struggle. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that I have struggled with since, but it was an acute struggle within the context of the marriage, yes. Yeah, and and within the context of that essay. And so, you know, as we have both gotten older, it's clear that you are very comfortable being without children. It's a better path for you. I am not uncomfortable with it, but I am far more ambivalent. And, And I live with a lot more weight in my heart of what would that have been like? What did I miss? What lessons did I not learn? What are the ways in which I didn't grow up? And what are the things that I could give to somebody else that I don't get to give? Which is why I think we didn't talk about this in the in the earlier part, but I also think that's one of the reasons why teaching called to me yes. was, was this idea that I had so much to give and maybe I should direct it away from Hinge for a while. 
<laughs> oh, the dating uh, app? The dating app. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, teaching, yeah. hinge, six yeah. of one, half yeah. dozen of the other. Yeah. I just mean that there was a lot of maternal energy that was going into dating young men. It was sort of like, oh, you know, <laughs> Do, they don't have MILF date. I, I would think that there would be like a special. The, uh, there really should. That. Honestly, there should be. There should be a special MILF manner app where <laughs> they can go because there were so many of those young men. And I mean, I didn't match with most of them that were just like looking for an older woman, love older women, milks oh, wanted. about? I mean, it's, that's a it's an interesting, topic, I think, yeah. I think, you know, it's one of the things I explore in the book, but I mean, like one of the interesting cultural mythologies is that women are invisible after they turn 40. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of reasons why that happened. One of them is a culture where fertility is much more in demand. Well, it's but that's an evolutionary adaptation. I mean, it would make sense. I, yeah. I just feel I don't. I, I'm, yeah. I'm less but inclined we, to blame that on the culture. That I'm just like that's. Oh that's sure, the biological reality. Oh yeah, sure, 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 sure. But what I'm saying is that the culture changed, and a lot of young men aren't interested in having kids. And we have also decoupled fertility from sex. So there's two lanes in their mind. There's, you know, the marriageable woman, which is one out of a thousand. And then there's the other nine, 999. You know, who are the, the, the women that you want to have interesting experiences with? Wait, you think that because if men don't want to have kids, because fertility is not necessarily the default setting of women now, and we've taken that off the plate. And that is actually something I want to talk about because I talked about it last week with Holly Griggs-Ball when we had mm-hmm. we talked about the birth control pill. It was fascinating. Mm-hmm. But yeah. are you suggesting that men now are conditioned in such a way that if they're not thinking about a mating strategy, then they're more likely to find older women appealing just because they haven't been conditioned to be repulsed by older women? Uh, maybe something like that. I mean, that's a, that's a, I guess what the way that I would say it is that there is nothing inherently unattractive about women over 40 women. I think in the male mind just exist in two categories, hot or not. Mm -hmm. It's not really bound by age. It's bound by basically what Facebook's origin story was, which is we're going to categorize all women right. into two categories, right. Right. regardless of your age. And, you know, this idea that the line is 40 feels like it's something that was created by, you know, yes, like you're right to say there is a fertility thing, like an evolutionary fertility thing going on there. But it's also like as women preserve better, like my mom didn't dress the way my friends do in their 40s. Like right. my mom wore pantyhose and like a tweed suit to work and like had turtlenecks. But that like was hot alt- back then. That was like the 80s. That's well, what, I don't know that it was uh, hot, but it was, I, it was, it was definitely it was the power, the power suit lady. With but it was the very masculine. It was, pantyhose it was and, very yeah. masculine and it was very mm. much like burying your sexuality. Well, my friends wear like like their moms and like they might have some thongs hanging around mm. and they might have some low slung tops and tight jeans. And I mean, like you look at people like Jennifer Lopez and Jennifer Aniston. These are like the hottest women in Hollywood right. for a lot of young men growing up today. And they're in their 50s. Right. right. So the idea that women are over- invisible or over 40 is just doesn't hold water for them. And one of the most interesting things to me is that when I have brought up this subject with multiple friends, the ones that push back on it the most and seem the most like, what am I trying to say? Not credulous, but lack, like, like incredulous. Yes. Well, are the women. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are the older women. Mm. And they 
kind of don't like. I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's not that they don't like it or they like it or not. It disrupts their idea of how the world works. And they understood themselves to be off the table. And mm. so this idea that they're back on the table is like, well, I, I don't know. It couldn't be true. And it's like, listen, if you look at porn searches, you know, porn is an interesting topic because there's often this conversation about how porn has created a kind of uniform sexuality or look. But in fact, I mean, that may be true, but at the same time, there's also like it has expanded the erotic palette beyond what anybody, at least this this oh, person, yeah. could have imagined. I mean, look, people are hunting out squid porn and, you know, incest kink and stuff like that. But, you know, the MILF category and the older woman category and the mature woman category and the big black woman category, these are huge on porn searches. And what it tells us is that the erotic appetite is so much more vast than Hollywood and women's magazines have suggested. And, right. you know, women's magazines are run by women and yeah. gay men. And, yes. you know, as far yeah, as I'm concerned, the fashion like... industry is run by gay men. Yeah. And, and they have, you know, they're the ones that floated out this idea that rail-thin women were what men wanted. Mm -hmm. Men never... Like, I've talked to so many men that are like, where'd that come from? Like, yeah. not my thing. I like curves. And I like a woman that looks womanly. Now, not all women, not all men. Hashtag not all men <laughs> like curvy women. My point is the variety, the variety in taste. And it's just certainly true. It's certainly not true that all young men want to date older women. But it has definitely been my observation that many of them are open to it. Also because... You, you use the word mating strategy, you know, which is like there's this idea in, in evolutionary biology between long-term mating strategies and short-term mating strategies. Right. And on the dating apps, it's dominated by short-term mating strategy, which basically is, is a way of saying it's a hookup. It's a hookup culture. Whether you like it or not, you know, you may be looking for love, but you're still thrust into this arena where short-term mating strategy is the default. And so... When what you're looking for is short-term mating strategy, age in particular does not matter. The sort of, um, will our family get along? Do we have shared values? Mm -hmm. You know, like, none mm -hmm. of these things are going to really come up. It's again, it's hot or not. And mm -hmm. so I do look a little bit younger than, than my age. At least that's, that's what the guys tell me. Yes, no, um, No, I do. I do. I think in part it's because I'm small. I'm five foot two. But I'm also like I quit drinking and I, I just I don't know. I don't know why. But I also think it's because I don't necessarily like think of myself as 48. I, I might dress younger and and carry myself younger in part because I don't have a child. I was just going to say, I wasn't going to say it, but you don't have kids. And so maybe I, that's, I, I don't have kids. Useful. And, that's and, and so yes. this, Fountain you know, youth here. yeah, yes. like a, like a certain, not just like the stress and the drain and the, all of that, but like a certain really maturing or, or, or like cresting <laughs> yes, into. Immaturity does look good on us though. That's true. It's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> look, I wear it well. I, I wear it very well. Yeah. But, yeah. but it is true that the, you and I have spoken about this before, quite frankly. Like there are stages of life that were understood to be inevitable that you and I have not entered. Right. And therefore, there's stuff we don't know about the world. You know, there's a lot of other stuff we do know about the world that mothers, uh, that women of an early era would be envious and aghast yeah. that we know about them. But 
I don't know what it is to answer for and care for one, two, three small humans. And so that I always carry around this sort of um, l- tiny little bit of ambivalence inside of me. It, it doesn't feel like grief. It just sort of feels like, but it, but it doesn't feel like joy either. But I bet it doesn't really not feel like grief because I would imagine that it would. I think that there's a stigma Sometimes. against admitting that. And I, I think it's really important. You know, I was talking with Stella O'Malley on this podcast a few weeks ago. Yeah. She's an Irish psychotherapist. And she said, you know, regret is an incredibly brave state of being. To mm-hmm. admit that you have regret about something, I mean, that's profound and radical because we spend so much of our lives reframing things. It's a, it's a coping mechanism. It's actually a a sign of mental well-being that you're able to reframe. Like, you know, I went to the wrong college. Okay. I can reframe that. I I made the choices that I made at the time based on (laughs) great, uh, you know, based on saying elsewhere. I mean, you could hardly hardly, like not get pulled in by that track. I I did the best I could with (laughs) the tools that I had so that it's easier to say that than to say flat out, yeah, I regret it. I I went to the wrong college. I I should not have done that. I would not do that over again. And this is something that I have to live with the consequences. Now, look, going to Vassar is hardly a a tragedy. And I know this sounds obscene and I'm going to be careful about this. It's an excellent school and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, and that's just one example of many. I I find that the older, I'm sort of in in a period these days where I'm regretting a lot of things. Like I'm actually saying out loud to myself that I regret a number of decisions that I've made. And I've noticed that it's a very different mode than what I've been in most of my life, which is like, okay, well, you know, that is what it is. It is what it is. Move on. And I don't know which is better. I think the regret spiral... It's, it doesn't feel good. Let's just yeah. put it that way. Um, and it, well, I may and it be makes, overblowing it. It also. makes other people uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't they, say it out loud. Because they want to give, it, they give yeah. a topspin. You know, oh, right. it's not a regret. You no, learned this. You learned that. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to make other people uncomfortable. Exactly. That's for but, sure. But yeah. I, I agree with Stella O'Malley. Is that her name? Yeah. Yeah. About um, the power of letting yourself feel that. And I guess the reason that I said I had used the the phrase carry around, I mean, I meant at all times I carry around an ambivalence. Yeah. At all times I do not carry around a grief. Right, um, right. The grief spikes and it spikes at odd moments and it is real. You know, it is like it'll be something as simple as visiting another. Like I did a story about this this woman that had grown up as a on the ranch as a cowgirl and she was a she was a black woman she's came you grew up in total poverty but she learned to work the land when she was young they call her mama sugar she i had written a story about her it had been nominated for an award i went to go visit them they've gathered her whole brood i mean this is just like her kids and her kids had kids and her kids had kids <laughs> those kids had kids it was like 50 people around me and i was like looking at the life and the tree that this one woman had made. And it was so warm and it was so beautiful. And I was sort of like, here's my story. You know, like, yeah, my life suddenly struck me as small and isolated in a way that I hadn't really understood it to be because I'm really quite comfortable with my life. But every right. once in a while, right. I will... I will glance up against another way of being and recognize its richness. And that doesn't mean it would work for me, but it means that I recognize that there are other ways of life 
that I think could have been quite meaningful. Yeah, to I, two things can be true at the same time. Exactly. And people will often very quickly say, well, you wouldn't have your writing career. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> you say that like it's a negative thing. I yeah. know, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, that, so that's the other thing is that, you know, I mean, I've been all up and down about my writing career. Sometimes I think it's the most important thing in my life. Sometimes I think it was, what the fuck was I doing? And, yeah. you know, so... I learned a phrase. Ada Calhoun wrote a book called Why We're Not Sleeping. Do you remember that book? I didn't read it, but um, I've heard really good things about it. It's yeah, it's really subject. good. It's it's really good. And she had a whole chapter on women that don't have children. And there was a therapist or a doctor, I can't remember, that used the phrase ambiguous loss. Mm-hmm. And I found it very useful. It is a There's a loss in my life that I cannot measure. And I cannot compare the life that I would have had if I'd had a child on my own. That child would be 18, by the way. It is not lost on me that my child would have been the age of my college students, you know. Mm. And that was something I never shared with them. But it it hit me one night and I just burst into tears because I could feel like, oh, that's part of why I needed this, you know. And mm. I, I I hadn't even... You know, I was just sort of like an animal moving toward an instinct without really knowing like, oh, that's what's happening. Because I talk about like certain people that are predisposed to be mothering and stuff like that. Like I am like 100% groomed to mother. (laughs) Like Mm. I had a very soft mother that was, you know, soft and stroking. And I had, um, you know, she went back to school and, and sort of disappeared in my girlhood. And that was kind of one of the the small little tiny tragedies of my suburban life. But all I did when I was growing up, I babysat, I nannied, I worked at daycare in college, I became a high school teacher. So all my only skill set until I became a writer was to take care of children. Mm. And it was just always I had all these friends like in college that would be like, I'm not gonna have children. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then they they all had children. <laughs> and then I didn't. And and it was such a weird flip-flop where I was the only one that seemed so, so convinced that I was going to do this. And then I was the only one that, that didn't. And mm. I think I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what happened. Is it one of these things where I said I wanted something, but I didn't really? Or what I needed was different from what I wanted or what I wanted changed. And of course, it's, it's, it's a combination of all these things. You know, any life is a combination of choice and chance and circumstance and culture <laughs> and, you know, all these things and vectors that are moving around you. You know, in another life, I would, I would not be a single writer. You know, if I lived in the, in the 1890s, I can guarantee you, I wouldn't be like proudly child free. <laughs> like I'd be, I'd mm. probably be dead by now because I'm 48 Sometimes years I old. Sometimes I think I would be a nun. You might have been because you would have been a great candidate for the nun. Oh my God, everybody says Because <laughs> you, you are so smart. You make smart. a great nun. But you what, are, oh my God, what is that even saying? Because <laughs> you're just so you're like, I always think of the nuns as being like the really smart, really like, like they're sort of like the Jesuits, you know? Real, yeah, I would have wanted to be like a smart, like an intellectual nun. I would have exactly. wanted to be like the Susan Sontag of nuns. And you would have been the Susan Sontag of nuns. Please, I'm going to call you that from now on. <laughs> and I would have wanted a boyfriend though. For, I mean, you know, what are we going to do about that? That's the problem though. You know, Look, it's get, get I would have wanted a boyfriend too. And I probably would have married to some 70 year old man that had the right, you know, because he would take my dowry. So I would also be like, I want to date the hot guy. But, you know, whatever. I I'd be washing clothes on a washboard and and 
you know, doing the mm-hmm. lie. I don't know. I don't, I don't even know. I'm not even smart enough about 1890s to understand what women did back then. It was just a lot of work. And, you know, it's so a life. It's so shaped by your circumstances and you have these choices. But how much choice do you really get in the end? Right. Right, right. I have so many friends that wanted to have kids. Not so many, but I definitely have a few. And then something happens. You know, they lose their husband. They can't have children. Yeah. Um, Something, you know. And so the life that you set out to create for yourself pivots at some point. It becomes the life that you have. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious what you think of this conversation that's coming up. A lot of younger women, women in their late 20s, early 30s, are really revisiting second wave feminism and and are very critical of it. This is something that comes up in my podcast with Sarah Hader a lot. Talk about people like Mary Harrington or uh, Uh. Louise Perry. And I think that there's a cohort of women coming up that, that are young mothers or they feel like they've been sold, uh, they were sold a bill of goods by second wave feminists. They're very critical of the way second wave feminists assumed that men and women were the same, that the way that the free to be you and me message that like you and I embrace also had an undercurrent of real non-reality. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> in, in some ways. And, and we were, you know, we did not, we were not told that when we were young girls that if we did want to have a family, we needed to make certain decisions yeah. and be strategic about it. That would have been considered an anti-feminist message. So what are your feelings about that discussion? Yeah, I think I think it's super fascinating. I mean, um, I I know Mary Harrington's work and I think she's she's super interesting. Louise Perry's book I read and I I agreed with a lot of it and I didn't agree with some of it. And but I but I found it so fascinating that it came into the world. You know, you and I have been students of feminism, but also like critics of feminism. And so watching that conversation, the aperture of conversation open feels really healthy to me. Mm -hmm. And it also feels like a corrective. Now, I think some of this is one of the problems is, again, we get into this thing where there's like, there's just sort of like, there's so many different strains of feminism that it's almost not even the same thing. It's like, you know, and it, it turns against itself, and it's like you get yeah. into this polyglot. Like, what do we even all believe? I'm not in? sure what we're talking like, about like, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, if if when you start saying like, "Well, you sure you can be pro life feminist," then it's like, wait a minute, but what does feminism even mean? What what is how is this a meaningful ideology? And I'm actually personally not particularly sure that it is for me. Like, I, I don't really necessarily identify myself that way because I don't know what it means as a feminist. Yeah, as a feminist, I'm not sure what it means to identify myself as a feminist. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it is that I'm telegraphing. Do you, do you need to know that I believe in the equality of the genders? I mean, come on. Do you really need to know that at this point? <laughs> right. Like what, right. It, what it seems to telegraph is a, is a certain, like I'm going to be, unfortunately, this, this was the, the outgrowth of the social media era. It was like, it seems to telegraph that I'm going to be, have a certain hypervigilance around the language that you use. <laughs> And and I don't, oh. I don't feel that way. I feel that I owe feminism my career in many ways, the 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 scope of my life. I don't want to turn on it and and do a sort of like, you know, this was all bullshit. But the unintended consequences, you know, this is something we've dealt with in 
any school of thought, you know, be it like marriages or democracy, like there's shape shifting ideas right. that we learn as we're going. I mean, you know, there is a really interesting cover story, and I want to say it's in time, but I'm not sure, that basically was written, I think, in the 90s. And I don't know if it was that, if it was that feminist backlash, you know, with Ally McBeal on the cover. I, I can't remember which article it is, but I read it a while ago. And basically, one of the women that had grown up, you know, she was a sort of the first child, you know, the first generation to grow up under second wave feminism. And she had gotten too old to have children. And mm -hmm. she had said to Gloria Steinem, why didn't you tell us? Yeah. Why didn't you tell us it was it would be this way? And Gloria Steinem said, well, we didn't know. And Did they really not know. Well, I mean, like, look, what does that mean? Nobody knows what. Like they don't know think about, that there's think a biological about, clock. No, of course they do. But they. They didn't know the downstream consequences. I mean, you, you can't go. anticipate these things. You it's cannot true. anticipate uh, right. these things. And remember that Betty Friedan was very much invested in keeping the nuclear family together. Right. And one of right. the splits in feminism becomes when she wants to, like, let's talk about, you know, let's talk about the family. Let's talk about the relationships between men and women. And you start getting the radical feminists that come in and are like, no, let's talk about family evolution. Let's talk yeah. about, you know, let's talk about lesbianism. And she's like, no, 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 no. And I think those <laughs> are the ones that we remember. That's the thing is I think that it's easier to remember the radical feminists and Gloria Steinem they were sexier, right? Like as, as media phenomenon. So, uh, yeah, yeah, Betty Friedan, yeah. So, so exactly. Cause I think that, I mean, I talk about this with Sarah Hader a lot. Like there's a kind of, I think the, the memory, the, the, the residual sort of memory of the legacy of second wave feminism is, is like, Oh, these women just thought that men and women were exactly the same and that women were going to do men's jobs and that there was absolutely no difference and that women could have casual sex and, yeah, and go down the it, list. And there was some of that, but it certainly was not all of it. And you're also like not you specifically, but one is making the mistake of conflating, you know, a heterodoxy of ideas, you know, a sort of hydra headed philosophy of ideas with competing theories and values as some sort of monolithic the feminists, you know, like like mm -hmm. there are so many people that that, you know, the feminist movement itself was turned against it itself yes. in many ways. You know, <laughs> yes. I recently watched something. Have you ever watched Town Bloody Hall? The, I think it's a Pennebaker documentary with Norman Mailer and. Oh, do you know what I'm talking yes, about? That, well, I don't think I've seen the whole thing, but you're, are you talking about the debate between was it was it Susan? Son? Oh no, with Gloria <laughs> Steinem. And no, no, it's Jermaine Greer. Jermaine Greer, right? Um, so, this, is, this is sort of analogous to the famous James Baldwin, William F. Buckley yes, uh, debate. Very yes, much so. Yes. Very much so. It's Norman Mailer versus the feminists is how right. it had been. Right. Had been um, you should you show know, that to your class. See oh, if they my have to go to God. The emergency room oh, my God. Oh, my God. I would be fascinated with what they thought of it just because listening to basically. So what happens is Norman Mailer has written a story called Prisoners of Sex. It's run in Harper's. It's been a big sensation. And it's been, you know, trumpeted up as sort of like his answer to feminism. Of course, it's actually like a pretty thoughtful piece, in my opinion. But he's going to host this town hall with all these different feminists. And he's, you know, there's going to have a civil, they're going to have a civil conversation. There's basically four different representatives on the stage. The one that we would remember is Jermaine Greer. She gives the most kind of like she gives quite uh, an amazing speech. She's she's quite good. 
at the podium. But the woman that runs now, you know, National Organization of Women, which is kind of the most staid of all the different mm-hmm. organizations, she gets up there and proposes that housewives get paid for their work mm-hmm. by the father. And an insurance against divorce, which is a fascinating idea that essentially makes the husband the CEO of a family. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it it doesn't seem to, I mean, I get where they're going with this, but, um, and in fact, this is something that's come up again in this whole idea of like emotional labor and why don't mm-hmm. we get paid for our work? So things come around, right? But it, it, I found it kind of mind-blowing that their idea of, like, the feminist reform that we need is that women need to start getting paid for staying at home. So, because that's very different than what I grew up with, which was, you're not going to stay at home. Right. You know, that, that's, that's not really even, like, like the, it's an option in the sense, but, like, is it really? You know, you're you're going to be a woman that works. You're going to be a woman of the world. Right, well, if you're a serious person. Exactly. You're going to not work it out. Yeah. No. And I mean, there's talk now of even it's been sometimes phrased as reparations for oh, wow. women. And yeah, I've heard that concept kind of floated in the IDW space. Sometimes I think Eric Weinstein actually referred to it. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I don't think that would. Yeah, that's the problem with any reparations. It's not really going to work. I don't know what the formula is but it's definitely worth discussing see that's the thing like a movement it's a it's a series of discussions like none of it is really gonna no one thing is going to work when applied on the ground it's a just a whole kind of gestalt of of thought experiments and you know a lot of people blame feminism for things like the popularity of casual sex or you know, even stuff around like drinking so much. Well, and I mean, get men I, getting off the hook se- sexually and yeah, in relationships. And, and I think so much of that is pop culture. I mean, I I, mm. I was far more influenced by pop culture that I was watching than anything Gloria Steinem ever said. I was not a really aware of feminism growing up. I was deeply aware of like teen sex roms and, you know, all sorts of different, you know, portrayals of a kind of blithe sexuality. That was that was much more influential to me than anything that was ever said at town hall between mm. a bunch of people that I wouldn't have even known existed. So, you know, I think feminism gets blasted for things that feminism really had nothing to do with in some ways. At least it didn't have nearly the impact. But, you know, because the the the, the promiscuity of the 70s and 80s comes about from the sexual revolution. And that's that's intersecting and working against feminism in interesting ways, right? Because the feminists were against pornography. Right. But then by the 90s, they had embraced it. I mean, you know, so it's, it's Ugh, all, know. like all of this stuff is just, um, you know, but, but, but it's all an experiment, right? Like right. all of life. And we definitely feel that in this moment because this moment feels so fraught. I don't mean this moment between us. I mean this moment that has lasted for like what, like five or six, ten years where it just mm-hmm. feels like, oh, wow, I knew the world was changing, but I didn't know it was going to be changing in real time right in front of me. Yeah. And I think that has to do with this technology age, you know, the the, the sort of ramp up of the Internet and whatever AI is going to happen next. And it's this, you know, moving history, as Tyler Cowen says, mm-hmm. and you can't get your hands around it. Right. Right. You can't. And so, you know, it's it's how can anybody know? the consequences that are going to come about from 
ideas that to them seemed really fair-minded, like women should be treated as as full humans. Women should have access to work the same as men. All of these seem very reasonable to us. We live in the spoils of the the changes that were made. But there are unintended consequences of that. And one of them is that by suggesting to women that they didn't need to worry so much about child rearing, some of them worried so little that they couldn't rear children. Right. That's very well said. So how does that make you feel as a as a thinker and a cultural critic? Like we're we're living in this time where it's impossible to get your head around anything. Where does that leave us? Are we all just kind of are we just do we have to resign ourselves to sort of thinking on the page or kind of being little mental bloggers rather well, I, than being able to step back and say, Okay, this is what's happening, people. Yeah. Mic I mean, drop. I think, I think for you know, I think for a while it paralyzed me. It mm. paralyzed me because I I wanted not only to be authoritative and to know where I was going, but to also be pleasing to the audience. You know, and you you start to get the sense that anything you say splits your audience. Half of them hate you, half of them mm. might like you. And it was just, it took me a while to step up to the challenge of that. And it really was just that I saw, like, if I didn't say anything, I just, just like, is my... I've fought so hard for this career. Am I really going to just let it wither on the vine? Because, and 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 for me, that's when stuff around child, like I don't have children. Like I, I don't have a husband. I don't have, I don't have like, oh good, now I can go spend time with so-and-so. Because I've organized my life that I don't have any of that. Yeah. Um. So the sacrifices that I had made to get there, you know, I'm just going to kind of ditch it because I'm afraid I'm getting blasted on Twitter. And for a while, the answer was, yeah. Yeah, I am going to do that. And then, and then I... I sort of decided that it was worth fighting for. And and for me, that kind of began with writing that article in The Atlantic, which ran about a, a year ago. And that was it. That was a year ago. You're what I'm afraid to write about. It wasn't. Yeah. So how has it been? I mean, before we wrap this up, like, is it like to be a, a you know, official thought criminal? Yeah, thought criminal. <laughs> Are you, uh, in, you know, you've got the podcast, you've got your writing and, you know, you're certainly like not strident at all. You're not one of these people that's out there just, you know, getting just shooting your mouth off for the sake no, of the and, <laughs> and and by the way I don't have much to say like yeah. like like, there, like one of the things that has shifted in me along with not needing to be so authoritative is just is just releasing any idea of certainty like I I have kind of like a radical agnosticism that applies to everything which is like been very good for me like I don't really know if it's good or bad. I don't really know where we're going with this. And it releases me and it it actually also feels it's the only way I can feel I guess accurate, as accurate as I can in the moment. And it may be lame because certainty sells and certainty feels good. Yeah. But it's not what I can give. And so yeah, I mean I think I've had a couple of run-ins over the years like like I think one of the weird things about entering this space is that because so much of it is online, we don't really have a lot of in-person interaction anymore, right. especially with people across the country. I never really know who I've shed as a friend, you know, oh, and no. and you start to wonder, like, is so-and-so not getting back to me because they're mad at me? Or, or am I not getting this gig? Because, yeah. Did I not get invited to yeah. this book festival? Because yeah. I yeah. know. So everything starts to become suspect, <laughs> but terrible. at the same time, it's oh, terrible. So narcissistic is what yes, it is. Yes, it is. Like, it, it is. But, 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 but you can't, I can't, as my mom always tells me, Sarah, you can't be someone who cares and not cares. Like, mm. like it's, it's kind of in your DNA to care about this stuff. And so you need to tolerate that you care about it 
and not be too hard on yourself for it. I also don't need to make that the centerpiece of my of my thought and day. You know, that's a waste of time. But it does. It tugs at me. It tugs at me. I wondered what my students knew about me. Like, mm-hmm. what, what had they seen? What did they know? I've definitely had a, I had a very bad interaction with an old colleague who made clear to me that he thought I was a garbage person. Uh, when I asked, wh- and this was, by the way, all happening on Twitter. Like, he was... <laughs> subtweeting me and this is a colleague like an adult our age this who's is using the term adult. garbage person this is a fucking adult and when i emailed him offline not offline but you know what i'm saying off twitter to say hey what's what's going on have i done something to upset you which is by the way the second time i've done this the first time he didn't respond um he did not respond again and then he posted more about what a ridiculous, you know, and, it, and he was doing this subtweeting thing that was sort of like, yeah. you know, this person that I used to know that now, you know, has a podcast and smokes publicly and wears a bunch of stupid hats. And, you know, it, it, he was making it clear that it was me. Mm. Um, oh. And I, I will say that it, it hit me really hard, not because I think I'm a garbage person, but because I won't ever know what I did what i said but i mean you know but you know the answer is nothing it all has to do with him and his need to signal to his group that he's still in good standing but i had to have done something you know and 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 i think like like i know there's one other person that that really sort of uh, she makes it clear to me on multiple different occasions like how much she doesn't like me and has sort of run interference with you know places that have tried to hire me and and thing, things that are that are that are not innocuous. And I've tried to reach out to her. And, you know, I know with her, she has a real problem with the way that I've talked about the intersection of alcohol and sex. I mm. am sure she listened to every second of my interview on Brock Turner with you. And I'm sure she was sitting there with notes trying to wait for me to fuck up. And it is um, ideological for her, you know, in addition to whatever else it might be, you know, that I have. I have run afoul of mm-hmm. dogma and I am a betray I'm I've betrayed um I've walked back and 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 not only that but I get a lot of attention for it and that galls her too. You know, it's like, oh, you're trying to say that you're so, you know, you can't say anything, you know, you're written in the you're writing in the Atlantic, you know. Like it's it's, it's a lot of like poor little You're hardly stuff. an edge lord though, Sarah. <laughs> I don't think you're exactly uh I've just learned there. that word and it's kind of like solo cast. Like I think it's just such a cool mm-hmm. word. Oh really? It's one yeah. of those. Katie Herzog used it and then somebody else used it and I was like, I had to look it up on Wikipedia. What's an edge lord? And then I was like, oh that's a cool word. Yeah, but I know I mean there is that there are those people out there, but I don't think for that. Yeah, I know that but the whole like oh how can you possibly be um have have suffered any consequences because here you are still you're still talking uh and and therefore and therefore you know cancel culture doesn't exist well most of the people who are canceled uh you you have no idea who they are because they've been canceled we're talking you know the real casualties of cancel culture are people who are just normal normal people who yes, stepped out of line at work yes. and their entire livelihoods have been lost. Their lives have been ruined. People are suicidal. People have killed themselves because of this. And it's not people like you and me. Um, but if people like you and me don't talk, uh, then I think we are betraying all those other people who have to stay in line. But, you know, I feel like writing is a career that 
you should fight for. Like, mm-hmm. and, and this was something, you know, you, you gave a bit of a rousing solo cast once um, that was about this. And, you know, it was sort of this idea of like, if, if you're not going to engage, what is, what are you doing? Right. Like, like why what, did you get into the job? Why did That's you get feeling. into the yeah. job? Is the job about status and needing, uh, you know, people to believe you're a writer? Is the job about a certain cushy, elevated sense of your own importance? What what, it, what is this about? And I felt like I had to get nose to nose with that and fight for it and say, yeah, you're right. Uh, if I'm going to demand the stage, I better have something to say. And I had ducked around in the corners of sort of safe play, you know, like, I'll just write about this thing that nobody cares about. I'll just write this little ditty. And I still do that, by the way, because actually they are things that I care about. It just happens to not be the center of culture. You don't always have to what? be lobbing. You frank- have interests outside of the culture wars. I have so many interests outside of the What's culture your wars. Secret. I so know. Do I. So do I. Actually, I have a lot, but nobody I, would I, know. I, you know, like, and I write for Texas Monthly, cares. and I write yeah. for Texas Highways, and these are the places yeah. that pay my bills, and I love them. And you know, they don't tend to be, you know, because they're Texas magazines, and we live in a very, you know, it's a it's a fifty fifty ish state. You know, you can't be too too divisive. And so, anyway, I. You know, I I have been I have felt so much better about myself, though. I, I really feel like there has to be a moment in your life where you stop worrying about what everyone says about you and you start worrying more how you feel about yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and it's that earning of self-respect that kind of becomes an inoculation. Yes. Against the pebbles and stones that get thrown at you. So, you know, like there's a saying in AA that's like, if you want self-esteem, do esteemable acts. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not like we live in this therapeutic culture where it's sort of just like, oh, feel better, feel better. You're a good person. You're Mm -hmm. good. You know, and it's sort of like people can pump you up full of that oxygen, but you'll leak out of the room right when you turn around. You know, there's there's nothing anybody can tell me that can very rarely that can override, you know, the sort of record that's playing in my head. And so all the accolades and all of that was just sort of like not working to move the needle inside me that felt like I was doing work that mattered and that I cared about and and touched people and connected to people. And that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted more than anything. And, you know, I got into this because I had been a lonely child and I had books that made me feel less alone. And I had always said, like, I it was something David Foster Wallace said many years ago, and many other writers have repeated it after him. You know, the idea that literature's work is to make you feel less alone. And sort of like now we've emerged into this period where everybody feels alone. Yeah. <laughs> and so your work is not your specifically work, but our work and the work of writing feels more pressing than ever. You know, if the, you know, it doesn't have to be writing, it can be a podcast, it can be, it can be a social media post, you know, which to, express yourself and the way that you feel can often give other people permission. And I'm glad that, that I can do that if I can do that. And I also think I've had to build a tolerance for knowing I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, that there is a, there's a sort of perfectionist in me that wants to always fall on the right side of history. And that's a silliness. <laughs> yeah, there is no a right a side of history. Errand. It's a fool's yeah. errand. Well, Sarah, I'm so glad that you write the things that you do. And thank you, as always, for coming and talking with me. I know my listeners love it and I love it. I could talk to you all day, but um, I will let you go. But uh, 
Until next time. Until next time, Megan. It's always a treat. That was my conversation with author, journalist, podcaster, Sarah Heppola. She's the author of the best-selling memoir, Blackout. She's written for places like the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Elle, Salon, Texas Monthly. She is the co-host with Nancy Rommelman of the podcast, Smoke em If You Got Em. And the substack for that podcast is where you can find her essay about uh, not being a mother, her Mother's Day essay that we talked about here. It originally posted a year ago, but it's up there again, and it's an incredible piece. So I, I highly recommend checking that out. She's working on a new memoir, which I'm sure she'll be back to talk about when the time comes. And you can find her on Twitter. You can find her on Instagram at the Sarah Heppola Experience. Her website is sarahheppola.com. You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast. Again, if you're a founding member, you can join us for our monthly Zoom hangout this coming Sunday, May 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. What else? The Unspeakeasy Austin, Texas retreat is the weekend of June 24th, 25th. We're taking applications for that. Space is limited, but we do have some space. So go to theunspeakeasy.com. You can request more information. Our online community, always available and endlessly interesting and getting better every day. So again, you can go to theunspeakeasy.com. Check that out. That's it for now. I'm going to give you a a week off to catch up with this long episode and, and anything else. So I will be back the week after Memorial Day with another super nuanced guest. So thanks for listening and see you next time.